2, uh, starting at verse 28, and then I'll read through uh, to chapter 3, verse 10. This is entitled God's Children and Sin, beginning at chapter verse, start again, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And that and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we, we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Amen. Thanks, Benny. Morning, everyone. Morning Morning to those who are nice and warm at home. May the Lord bless you. Good to be here this morning. We've uh, had a pretty big week. Uh, we travelled down to New South Wales. We did a wedding last Saturday. That was a family wedding and that was thoroughly enjoyable. And then on to Sydney to spend time with my son and his wife and our two granddaughters who are 10 and 13. Oh, Rhonda hides her age well, doesn't she? Um, And then we came back to a very busy week, Uh, came back Wednesday to a board meeting Wednesday night, which went very well. Please continue to pray for the board and the issues that they are uh, dealing with and progressing for us. And we have a members meeting coming up later in June. There goes my grandson. Bye, Franklin. You deserve everything you're about to receive. Lollies. Um... And then we had a funeral on Friday for Graham Grieve, uh, and some of you were there for that. Uh, And if you were there, then you would have uh, been revealed to you a very quiet, reserved man, but a man who was very faithful to the Lord Jesus, who served him behind the scenes. And remarkably, I'll refer to it later on in the message, but the the family showed some um, terrific photos of Graham through various ages and stages of his life. 
And his son, Scott, was here and his grandson, Luke, um, and Luke's certainly part of our church. He, there were photos of Graham and you would think it was Luke. There's a photo of Graham and you'd think it was Scott. They were almost spitting images of one another. So I said to Scott at the end of the service, I said, you look exactly like your dad in that photo, so have a look at the photo of your dad because that's where you're going. (laughs) It's always easier to do a believer's funeral because of the hope that we have in Jesus. And so thank you again to the church and to those who serve so faithfully behind the scenes. And of course, this week, Pete's back. Yay! (laughs) He was back last week. Oh, I was away. Uh Uh, He's been back two weeks here. Still enjoying the holiday? He hates it when I draw attention to him publicly. He's sitting over there, everybody, and... (laughs) Make sure you give him a hug at the end of it. He hates that too. (laughs) Anyway, it's nice to be back. And as you can see, I've had a haircut. It's the shortest haircut I've ever had. Did you say it looks good? I look younger. I'm going to shave it this week and see see what happens. This is all part of my 30 minutes that I'm allowed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can be together, that we are a family because of you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to look at this passage, to learn from it, to be challenged by it, and even, Lord, transform because of it. Speak to us, change us, to be more like him, we pray. And everybody said? Today's sermon is called God's Children and Sin, which is straight out of the NIV. Here we go, the end of chapter 2. This is like uh, one commentator called it a swing verse, verses 29 and 28 and 29, because they apply to the paragraph above and as well as the paragraph here, the transition verses. And John says, And now, dear children, continue in him, abide in him, remain in him, is the word that we're used to seeing. The NIV translates continue in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may be confident and not ashamed before him at his coming. The Lord Jesus is coming, John writes, and he's going to say it again in a few verses. We live between the two comings of the Lord Jesus, the first coming, which he'll also refer to in this paragraph, and the second coming. We live in between. And because of the first coming, something happens in our life, and in light of the second coming, things are supposed to happen in our life, and many things will happen when he does return. John says here, one... Remain in him, continue to abide in him. He is the vine, we are the branches. Stay connected to him. So that when he appears, we'll be confident. You know, sometimes, like when I was a school teacher, you could go out of the classroom and, the, and many of the kids wouldn't, have many, some of the kids would misbehave. And uh, as soon as you came back, as soon as they saw your presence in the doorway, they were immediately obedient again. You've had that re- uh, reaction, haven't you? You've been misbehaving and your dad walks in the room, don't you? That's the idea behind this, that when Jesus comes, don't be ashamed. Don't hang your head. That's rather confidently look up and say, Lord Jesus. So I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm doing everything right. It's in that context that that's the sort of meaning that John wants us to have here, that we can be confident before him because we are remaining in him. We're obedient to him. We're... Um, 
pleasing him in life's choices. He goes on to say, if you know that he is righteous, and he is, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Well, that follows. If Jesus is righteous, if he's holy, then if we're connected to him, then we will likewise be increasingly like him. We also will be holy. We will be righteous. Not perfectly, because he was the perfect human. He was without sin. We aren't. We still have a sin nature and we still sin, but we don't sin all the time. While we are not sinless, we do sin less. And that's exactly what this passage is going to go on and talk about. In the context, of course, it's the Gnostics who were around in the first century. And John is writing against that background where the Gnostics used to say, it doesn't matter what I do, sin doesn't matter. What I do with my body is not important because the real me, my soul, the inner me, is what is connected with God and that's what's holy. So I can indulge the flesh, I can do whatever I like and has no consequences at all on my relationship with him, on my walk with him or on my um, meeting with him. And so this was confusing some of the Christians of, well, which is it? What are we supposed to do? And so John writes... Again, a bit of a transition, but he emphasises this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, which is a pretty... It's an okay translation. It's accurate. It's, but it's behold. Draw your attention to this. Focus upon this. What manner of love God has lavished upon us. Poured it out abundantly upon us. He wants us to take note of it. And in fact, when he says... Um, see what great love. In the other versions, it's see what manner of love. It's the same word. It's an unusual word. And what it means is it's a word of excitement, but a word of surprise, a word of anticipation, that it's a little bit unknown. Remember when Jesus was in the boat and there was a storm and he stood, they woke him up and he stood up and he said to the wind to be still and for the waves to quieten down. Remember that? And the wind and the waves obeyed him. Then they said, what manner of man is this? What man it's the same word. What manner of man is this? Where is he from? Literally, it would be, could be translated from another country. From what country is this? As people lived on the coast, as they saw ships coming on the horizon towards them, there would be an excitement. And it's from what country is that ship coming? The flag will tell us. But what are they bringing? What's on store? What experience and products will they have with us? What manner of ship is coming? What manner of surprise for us? What manner of love the Father has poured out on us? It's out of this world. And he's poured it out on us. Why? Because we are now called the children of God. And we are. We're not just called the children of God. It's not just a title. It's an experience. It's a reality. That's our spiritual status. That's what we are. And the reason the world does not know us... He doesn't know him. Don't be surprised if the world does not approve of you as a follower of the Lord Jesus. In the wedding that we went to down in uh, Newcastle, uh, Rhonda and I, uh, followers of the Lord Jesus, were believers and were probably the only ones in the family. Excuse me, can't drink, dribble occasionally. Um, and so sometimes, in some contexts, the family can be rather awkward around you because they don't know what to do with you. 
They're far more accepting of Rhonda, but that's understandable. She's the sister and she's a lot nicer than I am. <clears throat> but I'm an ordained Baptist pastor. I'm a reverend with these sinners, non-Christians, unbelievers. And it's not a problem for me, but it can be for them. They just sometimes get what would appear to be sometimes embarrassed. And so sometimes they try to compensate that by being even more brazen or whatever. Um, so you don't look to the world. They don't know him. So they're uncomfortable with you because they don't understand it. They think you're, we are foolish. They think we are being ripped off. They think uh, we're being deceived by religion. But the, the reality is they don't know him. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. We are here now part of his family. We don't just have fellowship with him. We're his child. We're therefore part of his forever family. And John goes on to say, dear friends, we are God's children. Now we are. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We are God's kids and God isn't finished with us yet. There's more coming. The best is yet to be. We are changing. We are getting, we are improving. We are sinning less. But there's going to come a day when he transforms us completely and totally and we will not sin at all. Our old sin nature will be revealed. What we will be, not yet revealed. We've got a clue. But we know that when he appears, second time, we will be like him. Not the same as him, but like him, similar to him in terms of holiness and character. We're not going to be divine. He's divine. We're not. We're human. But he's the perfect human, and we are going to be perfect humans. And that'll happen because we see him. So when he comes, don't shrink from him and be embarrassed and ashamed, but rather live your life in such a way that you'll be confident to greet him and to meet him. This is John's truth to us. And all who have this hope purify themselves even as he is pure. The hope that we have leads to purification of us. God's love produces a hope that purifies. God's love produces a hope that purifies. You should tweet that. Do they still tweet? Since Trump's gone, I don't know. <laughs> All who have this hope in him purify themselves. If that hope is in you, it'll lead to some purification, some processes you will go through so we'll be like the lord jesus in terms of purity of character total satisfaction and glorified bodies i'm looking forward to a glorified body no more disease no more pain the blind will see the deaf will hear the lame will walk excuse me there'll be no wheelchairs no canes no walkers no insulin shots no acne no wrinkles I'm not sure about baldness. Well, they say that baldness is perfection. So we might all be bald. Probably not. No baldness, no weight issues, no ageing. Be wonderful, won't it? That's a glimpse of what it's going to be like. Because it hasn't been revealed to us what we're going to be like fully. Will we recognise one another? Yes. How do you know? I like Spurgeon's answer. He said, do you think we'll be dumber then than we are now? 
I recognise you now, then I'll recognise you then. Plus the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13, that we, verse 12, that now we know in part, then we will be fully known and we will know fully. Our knowledge will increase, not decrease. And as a biblical illustration of that, remember Peter, James and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and who turned up? Moses and Elijah. Had Peter, James and John ever met Moses and Elijah? No. Well, how did they recognise them? Answer? Name badges. Knowledge increases. It's imparted to us. So yes, we'll recognise one another and Rhonda will be perfect. And so will you. And so will I transformed and changed, all because of Jesus. In view of that, how should we live now? That's where John wants to go. Two missionaries went overseas and they had served faithfully overseas for many, many years. On their return home in their retirement, on the ship that they were coming home on, there was a celebrity on board. It turned out to be the newly elected president of the United States. The ship pulls into New York Harbour and there is a parade there, a parade there to greet and to welcome the newly elected president. <clears throat> and there's bands and clapping and cheering and ticker tape parade and all the rest of it because it's then the missionaries came off and there was nobody there to greet them. There was no applause, there was no band. That night back in the hotel room, he got a little bit down and depressed and he said, we have served God faithfully for decades. And there is no special homecoming for us. To which the wife said, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. This is not our home. We're heading home. And when we head home, there will be a parade. If the angels rejoice for every sinner that repents, what rejoicing are the angels going to have when we turn up with glorified bodies? It's absolutely amazing. God's love for us. Does God love us? Yes. Does God love all of us the same? Or does he love some people a little bit more than he loves others? What do you think? Is there anything I can do to stop God loving me, to separate me from the love of God? Apostle Paul says no. Nothing can separate us from him. It's incredible. I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make him love me less. And he loves me just as much as he loves you. He doesn't love me more than he loves you. He doesn't love you more than he loves me. He loves us all. Not because of anything good or nice in us, but because that's his character. That's who he is. God loves his creation. That's his nature. That's what he does. He certainly provides and blesses and makes it a distinction between people and what he provides for them in this life. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. He can make some unbelievably wealthy. Others can be in abject poverty, but he loves them. And in this life, they have different roles and different responsibilities. And I think it's the book of Proverbs that says, don't make me rich and don't make me poor. I agree with that. I don't want to be filthy rich. It's too big a responsibility. Many of us are probably millionaires. And it sounds ridiculous to say that, but what's your house worth? In this climate? 
I live in Druvay, a low set house. Paid 300000 for it years ago. It's now heading towards a million. 900000 Or at least that's what I'm asking. <laughs> One of the houses around us in Druvale. Slightly bigger block of land, not much bigger house. 1.2 million in Druvale. Charlie lives in Parkinson. He's at about 3, 4 million, his house. <laughs> Millionaires. We don't have that sort of cash or anything, but with the, that which God has provided for us comes a responsibility. I gave you that to use. Use it for the kingdom. It's a challenge, isn't it? I need to move on. Does a Christian sin? Answer? There's a disturbing verse in 1 John chapter 3, not in the NIV. The NIV translates it very helpfully and quite accurately. But many other versions will translate verse 6. No one who lives in him or abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Do Christians sin? The NIV translates it. You'll see the difference. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It's repeated in verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning because you've been born of God. Does a Christian sin? Yes, but not like we used to. There are five natures I want to talk about very quickly. Verse 4. The nature of sin. What is sin? John gives us a very helpful definition of it here. Everyone who breaks the law, uh, everyone who sins breaks the law. For sin is what? Lawlessness. What sin? Lawlessness. It's an attitude of not wanting to be obedient to any other authority over us. Sin is lawlessness. The Bible gives several other definitions of sin. James 4 verse 17 says that uh, he who knows to do the right thing and doesn't do it, to them it is sin. Or in Romans 14, verse 23, I think it says that um, if you do something and you're not sure, if it doesn't proceed from faith, if you're not sure if it's right or wrong and you do it, if in doubt and you do it, that's sin. So it can be quite harmless and not breaking the law, but if for you, if you're in doubt and you're doing it, you shouldn't do it. For you, it is sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is this attitude of, I want to do what I want to do and when I want to do it. I'll do whatever I want because I am not accountable or responsive, responsible to any other authority. That's the attitude of sin. And so lawlessness does not mark the believer in the Lord Jesus. Rather, submission does. Christians are conscious of the presence of God and of God's requirements of us. We don't fulfil it perfectly. But our intention is, we want to. The nature of sin. The nature of Satan that John refers to. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Underline that. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The nature of sin is lawlessness. The nature of Satan is, he is the ultimate sinner. He has been sinning from the beginning. He is the... First creature that God made and he is the first one to rebel. And in fact, if we read the scriptures correctly, he's been able to persuade about a third of the angels to rebel with him 
And he has established a demonic hierarchy which imitates God's kingdom hierarchy. That's all Satan does. He doesn't create, he imitates. And he is not content simply with that. He now wants to get as many people in the world as possible to rebel, to rebel against God. That's his aim. And so there are two kingdoms, as we have said on numerous occasions, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. And all who are not in Christ are still in the kingdom of Satan. It doesn't matter how nice they are, good they are, moral they are. If they are not, if they're not in, if Jesus is not in, in them and if they don't receive and believe in Jesus, then they're not in his kingdom. They're still in the kingdom of Satan. And the nature of Satan is that he is completely opposed to everything that God wants for us. So how does he do it to us? Well, he tempts us, he entices us. We have a sinful nature that remains in us. It's weakened. We can control it much better than we could before we couldn't. But what he does is to appeal to our sinful nature, to tempt us, to trick us. Temptation is not sin. Giving in to the temptation is the sin. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. If the devil wrote a book, Sidney Harris once said, then it would be called, You Only Live Once. You better enjoy this life because you only live once. He's deceiving us and deceiving many. Hmm. The nature of the sinner. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> verse 6, verse 8. There's also a few other verses as well, but I picked those two. No one who lives in him, abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What's the nature of the sinner? The nature of the sinner is a person who willingly, gladly takes Satan's bait. They don't resist temptation. They give in to temptation quite regularly. Christians can fall and stumble into sin, but you don't walk in it. We can be tricked and tripped we can fall down seven times, but as Proverbs says, but we get up eight. For the sinner, they are a person who is blinded by Satan, tricked and imprisoned by Satan, says in 2 Timothy. And Jesus has come to break the shackles, to set us free, to give us sight to see the truth and to walk in the light. But we've been redeemed. For those who are not redeemed, for those who are still in sin, they are under the influence and the power of the evil one. Satan. A sinner is still part of God, uh, Satan's kingdom and they yield happily to his kingdom's rules. Do as you want, he says to them. And in fact, he's like, here's an illustration, not mine, I borrowed it years ago from somebody else. Imagine our life or our world is like a cruise ship and all of us on board and Satan is the captain of this cruise ship and the captain announces, he says, the captain knows that we're heading for an iceberg and there's also a tsunami coming at the same time. The ship is going to be destroyed. He knows that, but he doesn't tell the passengers. He says, rather, from now on, there are no rules. If you're in second class, you can come up to first class. The bar is open and there is no more cost to it. If you want to play tennis or soccer, you can play inside. Don't worry about it. if you damage anything. Everything is insured and everything is covered. And everybody goes, wow, what a nice captain. We can do whatever we like. What a deceitful captain who's not telling them the truth of the danger they're facing. That's what Satan does. 
tricks and cons. The nature of the sinner is a person who um, is influenced by that and who accepts that. And given our world and the context of our world, Satan's aim is not just to trip us up individually, but to infiltrate and to permeate the church of the Lord Jesus. This is what happened in John in the first century. Chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not part of us. They didn't belong to us. They were different. They're not true followers of the Lord Jesus. So I don't know your spiritual status before God. You do, and he does. But in the church, generally, churches, there are unbelievers who are present, who are playing the part, who are pretending, who profess to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, but they don't participate in righteousness. They pretend. They're false brethren, as there will be false teachers, false prophets, and eventually false Christs among us. So when you read the news, and the news this year has been awful for the church, generally and internationally, you read about corruption and terrible things happening, from sexual abuse to misappropriation of funds, and it's all happening in the church. And it's not just the Catholic church, and it's not just the Anglican church. I think Pastor Charlie told you last week, it's also the Baptist church. Forget about the label, it's in the church. So be aware and be on the lookout. That's why we are to hold each other accountable. That's the nature of the sinner. What's the nature of the saviour? Well, John tells us twice. It's about two things the Lord Jesus came on the first time that he came. Um, but you know that uh, when that he appeared, that's the first coming, so that he might what? Take away sins, and in him is no sin. Why did Jesus come? To take away sin, to remove it, to pay the penalty, certainly for it, but also to remove it from us. That's why they called him Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel tells Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John 1.29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take away sin. The penalty of it, but also the presence, the power of it in us. When he comes a second time, he'll take away the presence of it. Totally. He came the first time to destroy the works of the devil. The next time he comes, he will destroy the devil. Here's an exercise for you to do very quickly. Um... In terms of appreciating and um, meditating upon God's incredible love for us and what he has done for us. Back in about the year 2000, roughly, around about there, before I came here, I was in another church and I had a lady come to me. She was in part of an AA group and part of a, was part of what we did as a church. And she came to me, and I think it's the fifth step. She came and she wanted to do a thorough moral inventory of her life. And this particular step is you write down, you write down all of the things you've ever done wrong in your life. And you find another person, usually a pastor or a counsellor, um, and you confess your sins to them. 
And that's what she did. It took her three hours. And I heard every aspect of her life and she didn't hold back on anything. That's my exercise for you. Try and do that. Take a piece of paper. For some of you, take a couple of pieces of paper. And I know some of you, you probably need a ream of paper. And write down your sins. Don't show anybody, but write them down. I would begin by saying, when I was three years old, I swore for the very first time. I don't remember that, but that's what my parents would tell me. When I was five, I stole a chocolate from the corner store. I also lied about smoking Rothman cigarettes to my mum. I still can't figure out how she knew. When I was six, I burned next door's shed to the ground. You've done it too. <laughs> yeah, they rebuilt it, then Luba burned it to the ground. Get it all down. Remember all of your sins, well, what you can remember. Write it down. And then take it with this realisation. Jesus came to take it all away. It's gone. Screw it up, burn it, get rid of it. But it is a healthy exercise because it'll reveal to you how sinful and broken we are. We are not perfect. I am a much better person than I was. When I was a non-Christian, I was in Satan's kingdom and I was doing lots of things that nobody should be doing. And I was playing football. And I'll say this. And I was pretty good at it. But I was pretty good at it because I knew how to play dirty. Good footballers play dirty. Anyway, that'll go on my list. What am I telling you? And when I met Jesus, he changed me. Now you see this incredible loving and adorable person who is loved and liked by one and all. Uh, well, that's a lie. I'll write that on the list too. <laughs> Nature of the Saviour and the second, second one. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I already told you that. He's going to come. How does Satan do it? Temptation and everything else. When Jesus comes, he's going to remove it. If you look around the world, it doesn't look like Satan's work has been destroyed, does it? Looks like he's in, having a pretty good time, success. And he is out there, but he's not in here. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, not in you either. He's defeated and he knows it. Do you know it? He is powerless. As powerful as he is against you because you're a child of God, he is powerless. Power's broken. It just bluffs. Smith Wigglesworth, I've told you about him before. A dynamic Christian, unusual earlier part of the 1900s, had a significant ministry, more Pentecostal, charismatic type person, but anyway, a servant of God whom God used magnificently, who one night was in bed asleep and he heard a noise behind him and he rolled over and he looked and it was the evil one. It was Satan had appeared to him. To which Smigglesworth said, oh, it's you. He rolled over and went back to sleep. Now that's the reality of what you can do. He can't touch you. John will come to that, 1 John chapter 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but he can't touch you because Jesus has destroyed him, destroyed the works of the devil, and he's still in the process of doing so. So every time you give in to temptation, you're giving in to Satan's whisper, 
to your sinful nature. And that's what Jesus came to remove, to take away from you. So everyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves, even as he is pure. The nature of the saints, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The nature of the saint is that we are people who are, as I've said, not sinless, but we sin less. If you were to draw a dot on every minute where you have committed a sin or commit a sin for the non-believer, for the person not yet forgiven, not yet in Jesus, then it would simply be a whole lot of dots that join up. It'd be like an unbroken black line. There is never a time when there is not sin present for the unbeliever. In thought, in motivation, in deed, in words. It doesn't mean people are as bad as people could possibly be, but it does mean that behind everything that they do, think and say, it's tainted by sin. It's like the influence of gravity upon us. It's just there. And thankfully, we are not aware of it. If we were aware of all of our sin, it would, it would destroy us. But for the Christian, if you put a dot on every minute where we commit a sin, there'd be some minutes where there is no dot. So it's not a strong black line, it's a whole series of dots, dot, dot, dot. Sometimes maybe a short dash. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians sin deliberately? Sometimes. But every time we sin deliberately, there is also the response of the Holy Spirit in us. He convicts us. We feel terrible about it. We come to confession. We have a Psalm 51 type response to it. Or we experience God's discipline. If you're a person who is, when you sin and you don't have any conviction, you don't have any guilt about it, you don't experience God's discipline, you need to take a very serious look at your life. Because it probably means, probably means, you're not in the kingdom. You're not there yet. Christians don't sin without consequences. Non-Christians sin gladly, willingly, laugh it off. But not a Christian. Excuse me, the nature of the saint. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue in sin. Keep on, keep on, keep on doing it. Because why? Because God's seed, his word, his spirit, his nature is in us and it's growing and becoming more dominant they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of god okay what's the nature of sin primarily it's lawlessness to live to live as if there is no god and no authority what's the nature of satan he's a rebel from the beginning he's trying to get everyone else to do the same the nature of the sinner they always yield to the will of satan they rebel and indulge in sin. The nature of the saviour, he came to take away sin and he came to destroy the works of the devil. And the nature of the saint are those who purify themselves, do acts of righteousness and love one another. As John will go on in the next paragraph to say. Jesus came twice. Jesus came the first time and Jesus is coming the second time and we live in between. We still have an old nature and we also have a new nature. And both natures will thrive depending on what we feed them. Just like we have a physical body and it needs food and cleaning and drinking water and exercise and rest, so our soul, our spirit, our inner nature, our inner person, the real us, the old nature feeds on sin, feeds on self, and is involved in self-serving activities. The new nature is fueled by righteousness, holiness, obedience, serving Jesus. That feels it. So which one 
dominates, the old nature or the new nature in your life. It depends on which one you feed. Feed the new nature and you'll find the old nature weaker and weaker and weaker. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, uh, Romans chapter 6, to no longer present your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present your bodies to him as an instrument of righteousness. As we walk in the light and act like light in this dark world, so that God through us can be saving others, because that's why Jesus came, to take away sin, everybody's sin. He wants to save everybody, but not everybody wants to be saved. There are questions available. I'm going to lead you in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful plan of salvation uh, that Jesus came through his death and resurrection to take away sin, to transform us, to give us eternal life. Now we are regenerated, adopted, justified, sanctified. Your Holy Spirit dwells within. And you've given us spiritual gifts and set us apart for your purposes and glory. And one day, Lord, we'll have new bodies, rewards and glorification, all because of Jesus. In view of the hope that we have in him, Lord, help us to purify ourselves, to walk daily with you, to say no to sin and to self and selfishness, to say yes to you and to your will, to loving one another. Transform and purify us as a church, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Charlie is going to lead us in communion. Thank you, Pastor Darrell. So for those of you online and uh, those in the auditorium, uh, please prepare your elements. Uh, Feel free to rip the top off those um, little containers because I know they get quite noisy, so I'm quite happy for you to do that now. I'm not going to prolong this, so uh, we've heard about being children of God and what a right and privilege that is um, for every believer. Uh, and it's the only, only the believers who are called children of God. And as we come to this table, we call it a table as we come to communion. And it is a reminder of the finished work of Jesus on the cross that provides that privilege for us, where we are called sons and daughters of the Most High God. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. Let's give thanks for the body of Christ. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus came into this earth, that he had a love and you had a love that was, for us, Lord, unbelievable. You loved us so much that even when we were at our worst, you came and you died for us. And you made a way that we could have relationship with you again. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope that that provides for us, the hope that is reflected in the broken body of Christ, that we will be in glory with you one day. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. And as we eat this bread, Lord, help us reflect on the sacrifice of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat.
in the same way Jesus took a cup at that meal and he said, this is my bloody, my blood which is poured out for you. And he gave thanks for that cup as well. We should thank God for Jesus pouring his blood out for us. For his blood atoning for my sin and for your sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died in your time. You laid down your life. You gave up your life. You fulfilled everything that was required. Everything was required for us, again, to come into that relationship with you. And your precious blood, Lord, sacrifice for me. Sacrifice for each and every one of us. Help us to realise the incredible cost and to never take that lightly. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you did such a thing for us. Amen. Let's drink together.